So back in Luke 20 this morning, um, just a quick recap. Jesus has been challenged um, as he's been uh, being led to Jerusalem, and now he's there. And since being in Jerusalem, he has been uh, challenged over and over uh, again. In fact, today we're going to see his third public challenge uh, toward him and his, and his authority. Um, and so when we, we look at this passage of another group of quote-unquote bad guys uh, come to Jesus, let's not just look at this saying there's just bad guys uh, trying to trick and outsmart Jesus, but rather let us see what our Savior is teaching us about the Bible, what he is teaching us, what he believes about the Bible, what he believes about the doctrines, right doctrines and good doctrines, doctrines that comes from the Scripture. And as we read it this morning, because we're just going to jump right into it in just a second, um, I want you to see the importance of doctrine to Jesus, um, especially the doctrine of, of the resurrection as it relates to the gospel, right? And if doctrine is vital to, to Christianity, then it is vital to the Christian life. It's vital to, to us this morning. So let's, let's look at the text and let's start reading in verse 27. So if you have your Bibles open, you can read with me or else you can try to look through me at the screen, uh, see through me as it's projected up there. Verse 27, there came to him some Sadducees. There came to him some Sadducees. Those who deny that there is a resurrection and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took the wife and, and died without children. And the second and the third took her. And, all, and likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to him, them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to the age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed. In the passage about the bush where, where he called the Lord the God, Lord called the Lord the God of Abraham and of God of Isaac and God of Jacob. Now, he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any questions. And this is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, and inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. Another challenge 
that Jesus has faced in the temple. This time, a little bit different. There's a direct assault on Jesus' doctrine. In fact, it's a direct assault on Jesus' theology, what he believes and knows to be true about the resurrection. And this time by a new group, new group to us in our study of the, of the Gospel of Luke. We, we've heard of the name Sadducees before because they're so sad, you see. There's a little more laugh that time. They come to Jesus like we've seen before with their perfectly crafted riddle. The, the ultimate conundrum. No one can solve this one. And guess what they use? They use the Bible. They use, they use the Bible. And, and we, can, we can just kind of hear it, and maybe because I kind of read it that way. But there's, there's some skepticism in this, this riddle. We, we know that they really don't believe what they're asking. There's some skepticism. There's, a, there's some making fun of Jesus. There's no genuineness of the heart at all. This, this week when, when I was meeting with, with Bill and we were discussing this week's sermon text, um, he's, he said that this question sounds a lot like the kind of questions that Satan asked Jesus when he was being tempted in the wilderness. It's crafted the same way. Let's use Bible versus Bible. Which one will win? Very reminiscent. Did God really say? Does God's word really mean that? It says this, but how can it be that if it also says this over here? Or if this happens, how can then God's word be really true? We're no strangers to these kinds of questions, are we? These kinds of doubts and these times of skepticism, sometimes shrouded in, in maybe right or right intent, but still the same questions nonetheless. An endless barrage of skepticism about religion, about the Bible, throwing out questions or, or riddles, taking texts that are very obscure and then taking them out of, out of context and pitting them up against others, all to, and to ask a question wanting to make a fool out of Christians or the person that they're asking. People think that just by asking the question that they've, that they've won, that they've disproven something, and therefore they feel better about themselves. In fact, I think it's to feel better about themselves and the massive holes that they have in their own worldview. They ask these kinds of questions. They build up straw men and they attack it. There's YouTube videos of that. That's the kind of question and the kind of attitude that is before Jesus this morning, the kind of questions we've heard before. However, there's one place and one doctrine that the Sadducees go after and others go after quite a bit, and that is the resurrection. They go after the, the resurrection. It's not just the Sadducees, but there's always been critics of the resurrection from the very next day after Jesus was alive from the dead, even his own disciples, there was some criticism toward the resurrection. 
There's criticism of the resurrection in Acts 17 when Paul spoke to the, to the Greek intellectuals at Mars Hill in Athens. He told them all about the gospel, and as soon as he got to the resurrection, they mocked him. They laughed at him as that being foolish, as if it's any foolish than the other junk idols that was standing behind them. But they mocked the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead and the resurrection of his followers has always been a stumbling block for so many. And it still remains to be true today. That's why around, around Easter, uh, the, on television, there's always comes out with those, those specials. You know, CNN likes to run some of them, History Channel likes to run some, and, and maybe some others. And they, 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 they coin it as the, the real story of Jesus, the story you've never heard before, or like you've never heard before. Yeah, we've, we've heard it before. Why? Because it's to discredit the resurrection. And if you discredit the, res the, the resurrection, then you discredit the gospel. And if you discredit the resurrection and the gospel, you have discredited Christianity. And it's always been that way throughout history. But nowadays, you can find skeptics of the resurrection, and still they call themselves Christians. Christian leaders, professors, and worse, some Christian pastors... They, they're used by those television series as the experts of the new story of Jesus or the new story of Paul. They become the experts. And what the Bible tells us is what an oxymoron it is to try to be a Christian and not believe in the resurrection. It's an oxymoron. There's no such thing. There's no, it doesn't exist. And I actually wonder... If we could corner many celebrity pastors around the world in the United States, and we asked them what they really believe. I mean, if you can, if you can nail down Jello, because some of them are Jello, and you ask them about the resurrection, I think we would be shocked at some of their answers. Because the trend of popularity, the trend of prioritization in our culture today is not doctrine. It's not the resurrection and the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of his followers. Now it's social ministries and justice. That has become the new doctrine. If that's what Christianity, Christianity is all about, why hold to something that is only going to divide? That's their theory. Why, why hold to something that's only going to divide? And, and for that matter, these, these Christian leaders, they're willing to divide themselves from Orthodox Christianity because they don't want to divide themselves from wealthy intellectuals who fund their buildings and fund their programs and fund their ministries. And that's where I have to stop in that matter. Belief in the resurrection is always at stake. So here's where I'd like to go this morning. And I think we see this in the passage. I think it's a, a priority that we see Jesus putting upon the, in, in this about the resurrection, but the importance and priority of right doctrine, right belief, especially in the resurrection. 
So I have two points I want to share. First one is this. Number one, wrong doctrine matters. Wrong doctrine matters. And I say it that way because wrong doctrine matters because it is dangerous. If something is dangerous, it matters. It matters. When, now, just to define our terms, when, when we say the word doctrine, we're, we're talking about our beliefs, what we believe. It's our, it's our, our set of beliefs about Christianity. And, and where we get those beliefs as Christians must be from the Word of God. It, that's our, that is our authority. In fact, there's, there's, there's doctrine number one right there. The authority of the Word of God as, it's, as it speaks over its believers, over people who believe, those who are Christians. The Word of God. It is our sole authority that God has given His church to know Him and to know who we are. And we put that in our doctrines. We put that in our doctrine. And so, and so our doctrines, they, they are uh, that set of beliefs. Sometimes we call them our creeds. Sometimes we call them our catechisms, our confessions, our statements of faith or belief. And throughout history, the Christians have set before the church sets of beliefs, doctrines, such as the Nicene Creed. Bonus points for those who can tell me the, his, the, the year the Nicene Creed was written. For those who have done our, our uh, church history on Wednesday nights, there's the Apostles' Creed. There's the Westminster Confession, the London Baptist Confession of Faith. Our very own Confession of Faith is a list, a set of doctrines of what we believe. It's a, it's a simply laid out list to clearly communicate to each other and to the world what we stand on and who we are. And it's all from the Bible. Now, the Bible shows us why wrong doctrine is so dangerous. Throughout the New Testament, in just about every book of the New Testament, as the apostles are, are, are writing to the church through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what, what is one of the main things that they're doing every single time? They are confronting false doctrine. And they're confronting false teachers who are teaching said false doctrine and are trying to get into the church. Why? Why would, why would so much of the New Testament go toward that? Because wrong doctrine matters. Because it is dangerous. It's dangerous because it corrupts the church. It can, it can spread like weeds in the church. It can melt the hearts of church. It can destroy the unity of the body of Christ. It hollows out any depth and meaning and purpose and hope. How? By elevating man and minimizing God and minimizing sin and minimizing substitutionary atonement, minimizing the resurrection and so many others, which completely diminishes the gospel. And that's what we see in the Sadducees. Let's talk about the Sadducees for just a moment. Verse 27 introduces us to this group. And it says right there what they deny. Here's their wrong doctrine. They are coming to Jesus with the wrong doctrine, the presupposition that the resurrection is hogwash. Doesn't happen. When you die, you die. And this, this particular group had quite a bit of power. It was a small group, but they have quite a bit of power, particularly in Jerusalem. Because they were the, they were the group that kind of controlled the line of high priests. So the high priests at the times were Sadducees. 
They prided themselves in their money and their power and their influence because they ran the show in the big city. You run the show in the big cities, you can rule it all. It's nothing new. They prided themselves in their, their intellect, in their progressive ideas, and their sophistication. They were theological materialists or rationalists, meaning, meaning they, they absolutely could not believe in life after death. That would make them almost annihilationists. And for that matter, they couldn't believe in eternal judgment. So they deny life after death, that this is it, body dies, boom, materialist, right? And they deny judgment. And, and these guys would often have arguments with the Pharisees. All right, they were always going back, because the Pharisees actually believed in the resurrection and, and judgment. And, and in fact, in, back in uh, Acts 23, Paul has... Uh, is brought before a court, and in this court there are Pharisees and Sadducees, and Paul knowing, man, there's no winning in this group. So he just says, I believe in the resurrection, and, and then they start yelling at each other. And Paul just kind of gets away with, with that. I love that. He kind of knows what's going on and such. You know, in, in practical living, they, um, they, were, they were deists, meaning they, they believed God never intervened in everyday life. Divine providence out the window. They emphasize man's own self-determination over God's will. And this shouldn't come to a surprise to, to any of us, but do you think they believed the Scriptures, meaning the Old Testament at the time? No. In fact, they pretty much denied most of it except for the first five books of the Bible. The Pentateuch, right? The first five books. And they say, well, in the Pentateuch, in the first five books, there's, there's no resurrection there, so we don't believe in the resurrection. These guys are the theological liberals of the day. In fact, it can hardly be different from what so many people would say they believe today. They would be right in the same line with this group. The Sadducees are set before us this morning as a sad example of why wrong doctrine matters. Look at verse 28. They step now face to face with Jesus, as so many others have done. And to them, they look at Jesus, a Galilean, a country bumpkin. That's the way they look at him. And they say, they look at the Pharisees, all been done in by Jesus, and they say, time for the city boys to take over. We can get this guy. And from there, they lay out their question. And, and let's just be really honest about this question. It is sick, isn't it? This is a sick and cruel riddle. It's a sick and cruel riddle of this poor woman who gets married. Her husband dies. And then they, they quote the, the Leverite marriage law of Deuteronomy chapter 25. We know it as the kinsman redeemer thing from, from uh, the book of Ruth, right? And they, they this, this beautiful, <clears throat> excuse me, this beautiful passage that God has given his, his people to, to, to provide and care and, and to continue a family along when, when death happens and then also to provide for the woman in a very lovingly way. They, they use it and twist it and turn it to try to prove a point. This was a law of mercy, not a law of cruelty. And they turn it around and say, when the woman dies, whose wife will she be after She's had six husbands, and they're all brothers. 
Whose, husband, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Again, this is their open, shut case. This, this riddle for them was like, a, was like a zinger. Zing, we got you. You can't answer this one. There's, there's no way to turn on this one. See, that's why, the, that's why the resurrection is absurd. How awkward would it be for the woman when she dies and, and each man comes up to her and says, so who are you going to be with? That's, that's what they're saying. They're making fun of this doctrine. And the same game that they are playing with Jesus is the same game that people still play now with Jesus. Wrong doctrine with wrong presuppositions asking obscure, ridiculous questions. Questions like, can God make a rock so big that he can lift it? Or a fence that he can jump over? Anyone heard that one before? Am I the only one who heard that? No one's else heard that before? They didn't raise your hand. Make you look like a fool. I already do that enough on my own. Thank you. Can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? Right? That's the, the question. Because if God can make a rock so big, then he's not powerful because he can't, jump, he can't lift it. And if he can make a rock that big, he's still not powerful. Then he's not God. Oh, zing, zing, zing. We got you, Christian. How are you going to answer that one? It's a philosophical game, philosophical game of pitting God against God. But there's no genuineness of the heart. There's no actual seeking. Just like in the Sadducees, there's already a presupposition against the Lord. Now, to answer the question, if you've ever been asked that question and don't know how to answer that question, the question actually is nonsensical. It's nonsensical. It doesn't make sense. It's an idiotic question. It's kind of question to me, I should say. Don't call him an idiot because you really, really won't get anywhere. And the reason why it's nonsensical is because what they're asking is they're asking which infinite character of God is greater than the other. Now think about what I just said there. How can one infinite character of God be more infinite than the other? That's why it's a nonsensical question. But it's one of those zinger questions that they like to use to poke holes and make fun of Christianity and the Bible. And so Jesus' response helps us understand what's going on here. Now, he actually says something in, in Mark and in Luke that really helps us understand what's happening. And, and I'll read it for you. They'll, they might put it up for you. Uh, Mark 12, 24. He says, is this not the reason you are wrong? Is this the reason why you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Boom. Here's the, the essence of why wrong doctrine matters and why is it so dangerous. Because it's neither knowing the scriptures nor is it knowing, believing, and having faith in the power of God. He's saying to them, you don't know your Bibles and you don't understand the power of God and that's why you ask stupid questions like that. That's why you pit infinite versus the infinite. You don't understand these things. And this is why wrong doctrine is so dangerous because it leads them to bride themselves as if they are the intellect and they know how to ask the right questions or the right riddles and how to do things and how to use the word of God against the word of God. And what Jesus says to them is really sad, isn't it? These Sadducees who, who were the, listen, they're the high priests. And Jesus says to them, you don't know your Bibles and you don't know the power of God. 
not knowing the scripture, not knowing the power of God leads us in weak doctrine. And weak doctrine leads to weak lives and ineffectual lives. Ineffectual for the, for the Lord, for the, for the gospel, for Christ. Denying the power of God leaves us lifeless. Leaves us cold. Leaves us skeptical. I've heard these arguments over and over, and so have you probably have heard them before. Arguments against the scriptures, arguments against the resurrection. But I've read enough of Jesus and I've read enough of Paul in the scriptures, in the word of God. And seeing that Jesus believes in the resurrection, and if the apostle Paul believes in the resurrection, and I've seen these other people deny these things, Brothers and sisters, I can tell you that Jesus and Paul are far more trustworthy than those so-called experts. And we can confidently believe in the scriptures. We can confidently believe in the power of God and believe in the resurrection because Jesus himself believes in the resurrection. And that brings us to the next point. That if wrong doctrine matters because it is dangerous, then right doctrine matters. Right doctrine matters. And this is exactly what Jesus is showing us here. He's showing us why right doctrine matters. So let's unpack his response from, from Luke's gospel. We saw already it's because they, they deny the, the power of the word of God. They deny the authority of the word of God. And they, have, they deny the power of God, which is why they have wrong doctrine. They ask such dumb questions. And so Jesus corrects them in the things that they have misunderstood in the scriptures. Look at verse 34. He says, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given into marriage. So we'll stop right there and then we'll see what he's saying here. That's what he's saying. Those who get married now in this age, right? Those who get married and those who are considered worthy. We're going to talk about that in just a few minutes. To be resurrected, meaning to, to go to heaven or to get into the, 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 the new heavens and new earth, those who are saved, what does it say? It says when, when they get there, they are no longer married or will get married. Now that's kind of a shocker. That's kind of a shocker because if you are enjoying marriage now in this life, our hope would be that the good thing in this life would be extended into the next. And, and yet, that kind of continuity, according to Jesus, could be kind of dangerous. And, and we don't know the real reasons why, the, the, the complete example reasons why that's, it, marriage is being abolished, in a, not abolished, but no longer necessary in, uh, in the new heavens and new earth. Uh, we, we don't know exactly why, but it still can be kind of dangerous. The, that's what the Mormons believe. Mormons believe that, that actually marriages are sealed eternally. They're sealed eternally. And why marriage is so vital to them is, is marriage is vital to their, to their very own salvation and to their very own inheritance of getting a new planet and propagating it themselves. It's weird stuff. It's weird stuff. 
Again, another example of why wrong doctrine matters. And Jesus is not saying here that we will have less now than what we will have in heaven. In fact, what, he is, what he's saying is saying we are going to have more. Those, those things will be greater and they'll be more intensified. He said rather love and close relationships will be, will be more greater, will be greater in, in heaven. Because in heaven there is perfect joy. And this is the power of God because he's able to create a, a world of great joy and friendship and love in the life to come that is even greater than a reality that we can even comprehend now. Marriage is given to us now, not just for relationship and procreation now, but marriage is actually meant to give us a picture and a foretaste of that far greater joy and far greater reality of our union with Jesus Christ for all eternity. That's what marriage is for now. Ephesians 5, go look at Ephesians 5, go look at Revelation 19, 6 and 9. It tells us there. Our marriages are only a preview, a small sliver, a small preview to the much greater reality to come. And once it comes, Jesus is telling us for one reason or another that marriage is no longer necessary. That marriage is no longer necessary. And as strange as it will seem, it won't be missed. Now, I still believe we'll still be with each other. And we'll know each other and those relationships will be perfect and right. But Jesus' purposes here isn't just to tell us about marriage or the, the, the nature of the eternal state. It's a great example of, of why right, right doctrine matters again. The right doctrine of marriage and eternity gives us hope now. It gives us hope now in our marriages. It gives us hope now if you're in singleness. It gives you, you hope now. Maybe not just not hope to be married, but it gives you hope in, in eternity and the glorious uh, doctrines and purpose for your, for your life now. The things that it points to now, even in your singleness. It points to us in, even in our marriages and in our singleness that there is something lasting to come, that there's something ultimate, that there's something greater. And that gives us hope today. That gives us hope now and for eternity. And so Jesus goes on now to, to press them on right doctrine, why it matters for the resurrection of himself and his followers. Look back at verse 36 with me. He says, he continues, verse 36, For they, remember they, those who are considered worthy to attain the resurrection, right? they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, and sons of the resurrection, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he isn't the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Now, how does Jesus defend the right doctrine of the resurrection? What does he do? He turns to the scripture, doesn't he? He turns right to the scripture. In fact, he turns to the place where, where the Sadducees only look to, in the Pentateuch. He doesn't bend them. He doesn't pit text one another with, with riddles and nonsensical questions. But he uses the scriptures. And he points them to the most, one of the most famous of all texts, right? Moses before the burning bush. 
And what does he do simply in that passage? He gives them a grammar lesson. He gives them a third grade grammar lesson. What tense does God refer to these patriarchs? Is it past tense? No. Is it future tense? No. Is it present tense? Yes. Good job, class. That Jesus is giving a third grade grammar lesson to the Sadducees. Why? Because God is not the God of dust and death, but he is the God of the living, for all live to him. Jesus is affirming the authority of Scripture. I love that. Jesus using Scripture. Affirming the authority of Scripture from beginning to end. It affirms the resurrection. Affirming right doctrines. What the, the Bible helps us to do. Constantly showing us the, how we are to see God and how we are to see ourselves. How we are to see God and how we are to see ourselves says he's the God of Abraham. Well, Abraham's been dead for a while. Hebrews 11 tells us that Abraham, by faith, Hebrews 11 verse 10, was what? By faith, looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, verse 16, but they desired a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Why? Because he is the God of the living and all live to him. Resurrection is coming because the word of God tells us so. It's clearer in the Old Testament, and it's clearer in the New Testament. Why? Because it is right doctrine. Because it is right belief. So why does Jesus say that right doctrine, especially in the resurrection, matters? Well, he points to three things. I'm going to go back now to verse 35. He points to three things there. It says, number one, as it says, who are considered worthy to obtain that age and to the resurrection. Right doctrine points us, number one, to the gospel. It points us to the gospel. Look what he says there. It says, resurrection, they who are considered worthy to attain that age into the resurrection. He's speaking of salvation. And, and when one dies, if they are in Christ, then they will go to heaven. But let me ask you the question. Who is he saying is worthy? Who is, who is worthy? Who is worthy unto the resurrection? Is it Abraham? Is it Isaac? Is it Jacob? Is it Martin Luther or Spurgeon or Jonathan Edwards? Is it you? Is it me? Who? Who is worthy? None. None of them. Not you, not me, not anyone. In fact, there is only one. There is only one who is considered worthy for resurrection. And that is Jesus Christ. He's pointing to himself, to a future coming thing. So what hope then do we have? 
how are sinful, rebellious, unrighteous people then considered worthy? Well, we should know the answer. And if you don't, let me tell you. It is only by the grace of God. It is only by the sovereign grace of God. Only in Christ's perfect work on the cross. Only by faith alone in Christ alone. Like Abraham who before looked to God in faith. And God counted him righteous as we look to Christ in faith. When we look to Christ, when you look to Christ alone, then it is counted to us, to you, his righteousness that alone is how we are counted and considered worthy to attain to the age to come, to the resurrection of the righteous. Again, why does right doctrine matter? Because it points us to the grace of God. It points us to the very heart and center of the gospel that we are only saved through Christ. We are only saved by grace. And in, by faith alone, we come to him. And he transforms us and makes us new. Right doctrine matters because it points us to the gospel. Second, right doctrine matters because it gives us joy in Christ now. It gives us joy in Christ now. For four years, we have been hammering and hammering and hammering this point. Because to know the grace of God and the mercy of God in Jesus Christ, it changes everything. It changes how we live life. It changes how we fight sin. It changes how we view ourselves. It changes how we see God. It changes how, we've, how or if or when we delight in God. It changes how we love our wives and our husbands. It changes how we love our children. It changes our perspective on the church and membership and discipline. It changes how we love and submit to one another. I mean, this is what the whole book of Ephesians was all about when we preached it for 40-something weeks. It was all about how the grace of God transforms and molds us over and over in Christ that we would look more and more like Him and that we would obtain the likeness of Christ. And that gives us joy. So we hammer that. We've been hammering this doctrine because it matters for our joy. Right doctrine matters for your joy. Doctrine is not cold and hard. It is heart-changing and transforming. If it is cold and hard, then, then just like Jesus said, they may know their Bibles, but as Jesus said, it, they are denying the power of God. If your doctrine is cold and hard, then you are denying the power of God because it transforms us. And it gives us joy. It impacts everything that we do every day. It's absolutely vital for our encouragement. And it's why we hammer away week after week and we sing about the God's, God's grace week after week. Because joy is a fight. Some of you know, I mean, firsthand, joy is a battle. I mean, it is a boxing match with the Mike Tyson of, of, uh, of uh, what is that word I'm trying to find? Of condemnation. 
grief. And right doctrine is the hammer. It's the shovel, it's the pickaxe, it's the drill, it's the sword in our fight for joy. What do you tell a suffering, almost to death, brother or sister with cancer? Or another who is facing the sword of persecution? What do we hold on to, stand on after disappointment after disappointment? Loss after loss and after more loss. What do we tell? What do we say? What do we preach to our hearts? What do we fight with for that joy? We fight with the sword of the word of God, which has shaped our doctrine. Which has shaped our doctrine. Relying us on the foundation of the promises of God. Because he is the one who has considered us worthy, covered us with the righteousness of Christ, and made us clean. And why? And what else do we believe? We believe that they cannot die anymore. Brothers and sisters, right doctrine gives us joy in Christ now. Lastly, right doctrine grounds us in the firm foundation and assurance of our present and future in Christ. I'll say that again. Right doctrine, it grounds us, it roots us in the firm foundation and assurance of our present and future in Christ. In Christ. And Jesus shows us that reality. In verse 36, he gives these, he just kind of throws out these three statements that are like, what? What is he saying here? He's saying something important, something big. Look at these three statements. First, he says, they are equal to angels. What? What is that? It means that when we are made new, that we will be like the angels in beauty and strength. The two things in my life that I am seriously lacking, beauty and strength, that he will do. And there will be no more sin There will be no more sickness, no more tears, but only righteous desires and thoughts. No more anxiety, no more fear, no more depression, no more pull. No more pull from that self-will. I mean, we know what that is. No more pull there. It's gone. Only righteousness. We've been sown in weakness, and we feel it. But in the resurrection, we will be raised in power. And like the angels, we will worship God forever and ever and ever. And our songs will be filled with even greater joy than what the angels can sing. Because as the redeemed, we will be singing to our Redeemer. Spurgeon said, never did angels taste above redeeming grace. And dying love. Second, Jesus said, we're going to be like angels. And then he says, and are sons of God. We can kind of just read over that quickly, but I don't think the Apostle Paul read over that quickly because he devoted a whole chapter in, in, in Romans 8 just about that. And, and I think Galatians, maybe Galatians 2, about this, this very idea 
He unpacks it. That we are going to be called now sons. Inheritors. And no longer slaves. Why? Because we've been transformed. We've been led by the Holy Spirit. We've been made new because of Christ. And as sons, we didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Now, why this fear and unbelief? It's gone because of Christ. But the spirit of adoption as sons. Are sons welcomed or are sons turned away? Are sons given or are they refused? Are sons cherished or are they turned away? Sons are welcomed and they will be brought home and loved and cared for and given an inheritance. Why? Because God is a God of the living and all live in him. And think about how this changes everything. Think about how we submit to him as sons, not as slaves. But we submit to man as sons. That's a big one. But third, he says, being sons of the resurrection. And this means that those who are in Christ are sons of the resurrection, meaning we are the fruits of his resurrection. We are the fruits of his resurrection. We don't have time to unpack it completely today, but this is the whole point of 1 Corinthians 15. That's what Paul is telling us, that if Christ raised from the dead, then those who are his will be resurrected as well. Then the dead will rise in Christ. And if Jesus rose from the dead, then we will raise, be raised from the dead in the same likeness. Again, this is why right doctrine matters. Because it gives us assurance now as sons, not longer slaves, but as sons, but it gives us assurance in the future. In the future, sons of the resurrection. And this is why right doctrine matters. We're running out of time, probably out of time. And we haven't even come close to scraping the surface of all of these things. But consider all the glorious things that Jesus has told to us this morning in his passage, in this text. About the resurrection and about doctrine, about eternity. We believe and we pursue biblical doctrine because as our, the knowledge of our minds are filled with God, filled with his word and his glory, then from his word, our hearts and our wills, they will come right along with it. So what about you? Are you rooted in right doctrine? Are you rooted in the, the things that give you joy? Are they, are they the things that are the fuel of your joy? The catalysts of our joy? Are you filling your minds with those things? The things of the scriptures? Things we may have to wrestle with, but things that will give us joy? And do you believe it? Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we are thankful. We're thankful for the, the Scripture, because in the Scripture alone we know what is, what is right doctrines. And so, Lord, we pray that not only will we believe them, not only will we confess them, but, oh God, that they would transform us. These great truths. So, because our, our joy is at stake, our assurance is at stake, our, our hope is at, at stake here. Our, our, our love for one another, our love for you is, is at stake. We, we may still be weak and immature because we have not been pursuing the, the depths of the word of God. As we should, as we need to. And so, Lord, I pray that as we, we respond together this morning, that we are encouraging to one another. And that you would use this time also to draw us out for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.